we can get started. And uh, I think most of you know me. My name is Jerry. I'm Yuri, and I serve as the uh, assistant stated clerk of the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. And part of that job is also uh, general counsel. So I'm an attorney for the church and um, chief constitutional officer, CCO, and I sometimes think of it as chief conflict officer because it's almost always the conflicts in congregations and presbyteries will come to my office and I'll try to work through them. Now, I think one of the things that gave me the experience to do this uh, job is the time that I spent as a trial attorney. And I want to just tell you a story about that that I think is instructive for conflict resolution. And here's what I'd like you to do is put yourself in the, my position, and I want you to feel the story more than anything else. All right, there, yeah, there's facts, but I want you to feel it and then think about how the facts make you feel as we're considering this. So back when I was a Philadelphia prosecutor, one night at about quarter to five, a friend of mine who is a fellow prosecutor hands me a file. He says, this is for tomorrow. It must be tried. The judge is going to kick it out if we don't put it on tomorrow. I'm going on vacation. I want you to handle it. Okay, sure. We do that quite a bit in the DA's office, so that was not the worst part of it. So I got it, and I want to tell you the facts. Elderly, special needs man walking down the street in his own neighborhood has his shoulder shattered by defendant who hit him in the shoulder with the baseball bat. So how do you feel when you've heard those facts? I think if you're, you feel angry, and that's exactly the right answer, you start to really get angry and say, well, wait a minute, this guy's walking down the street in his own neighborhood in the middle of the day, right? And some thug picks up a baseball bat and slugs him, shattering his shoulder, requires reconstructive surgery in bad shape. So now I'm angry about the, the righteousness and the truth of the issue, and then I'm a little bit stressed in addition to that because my friend just handed me the file the night before. So you don't have a lot of prep time. So think about it now. You have the righteousness of the cause that's driving you. You have your friend. You want to do good for him. You want to do well for the righteousness sake of it. If the media should get wind that you lose the case, Boy, that would be devastating. Then you've got your own boss, and you've got the boss of your friend. So there's a whole lot of people you've got to keep happy. So the right, there's a lot riding on this case. And it was the kind of thing where I couldn't afford to lose it. In other words, I, that would be devastating. So I open up the file. As soon as I get home, you do most of this prep at night, right? So I open up the file. I've got all this welling up inside, right? And you're ready to go to war. I look at who the defense attorney is. It's one of the top five defense attorneys in the city, one of the very, very best. I'm like, great. Okay, so now how am I going to look in front of him? I've got to put my best foot forward, and this guy is a shark. Okay, so now I want you to think this through with me. The way to prosecute a case is you look at the date, time, location, and jurisdiction, and identification. You don't need to know that. I'm just telling you. Date, time, location, jurisdiction, and identification. That's how you start every criminal case. So here's the date. September 11, 2001. The time is 1 o'clock in the afternoon. Now, why in the world would you think anything is going to happen? So what was everybody doing September 11, 2001? You have any idea? If you were an adult, I should say, if you were an adult at the time, and these people were adults, every adult was freaking out in front of the television. <clears throat> there weren't people outside. They, they closed court early, and they let everybody go home. And the, the people at the parking garage, they didn't even take your money. Everybody could just go home. You were sitting in front, I'm like, wait a minute, I remember that September 11th, I remember 1 o'clock in the afternoon, the whole afternoon we were watching the TV. So what was going on there? So that was the first red flag. Another red flag comes up. The location. The location was Temple University. If you're from Philadelphia or know Philadelphia, Temple University is an inner city uh, university, and it was on one of the side streets where there's a lot of student housing. So now I'm like, September 11th, 2001, 1 o'clock in the afternoon, near student housing. Okay, so, sorry. 
uh, jurisdictions, Philadelphia, that's no problem. Identification, the defendant, the bat-wielding, the baseball bat-wielding defendant, a female college student. So what do you do with that? So now do you feel, can you see how your feelings change a little bit when you hear that? You're like, well, wait a minute now. What's going on that a female college student is the one with the baseball bat? Okay, special needs man, right? You find out a little bit more about the special needs man. Paranoid, schizophrenic with auditory hallucinations. Well, now it's starting to come across. So I read a little bit further. There's eyewitness reports. The guy was walking down the street mumbling to himself, speaking incoherently, knocks on people's doors to get them to sign a petition about 9-11. This woman, she comes to the door. She says she's not interested. He starts pounding more. In Pennsylvania, you don't have a duty to retreat, but she retreats anyway. She retreats into her home to call the police. He follows her in. She's got a baseball bat near her door. She belts him. He goes outside, collapses. So you see, I went from a place where it would be the end of the world if I lost this case to after reading it, it would be the end of the world if I won this case. So I had no choice. Went to court, saw the attorney. It was must be tried. I told the guy, I said, this is going to be a long not guilty. I don't have the authority to withdraw the case. It's not my case. But I don't see how your person's guilty of anything. So I'm going to allow the victim to testify in narrative form, and then we're going to be done. And, uh, and, that was, and that was the end of the case. What's the biblical principle at work there? I'll, I'll give you a hint from the book of James. James chapter 1, verse 19. Everyone, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. And the reason why I tell you this is, is for my concern for pastors and church leaders in our denomination. Do you realize that you are only one conflict away from torpedoing your ministry? People will often say, you know, you're one moral failure away from damaging your ministry or ending your ministry. But make no mistake about it, you are one conflict away from exiting your current call. I've seen it happen over and over again. So I want to tell you on the front end, I want to tell you right here and now, so you could think back to this event when you are facing a conflict. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Why? Because man's anger does not bring about the righteousness that God desires. So that you have the righteousness of your cause. Your anger is not going to bring about that righteousness. Your anger is not going to be the means through which God is going to make the right result. Now, there are very small exceptions of this here and there. If you want to talk about them later, you can. But I don't see them in practice very often. So I want to be quick to listen, very slow to speak. And I would say you really got to postpone anger for as long as you possibly can because it's not going to help you in the church. Now, if this verse really gets into your head and moves down to your heart, it is going to change the way you interact with people at work. It's going to change the way you interact with your family members, and it's going to change the way you interact with your friends. It really will transform everything. And what we're talking about today specifically is it'll change the way you interact with your senior pastor and with your church leaders or your direct supervisor if it's not the senior pastor. It'll change your relationships in the congregation. Now, every, every culture tells us actually kind of the opposite. They're like, you need to be quick to speak. You need to be quick to defend the truth. Right? Yeah, absolutely. But you know what? If you're not a listener, you're not even going to know what the truth is. I thought I knew the truth when I opened up that file and saw elderly man hit. That was just a tiny little fraction of it. And if you want to know the truth, you've got to open up the time frame. You can't just say, how many times, this is, again, a lesson from being a, a former prosecutor. How many times do I get a case where the victim essentially says, I was just sitting on my front porch, minding my own business, and then a group of ruffians came up and punched me in the mouth and then disappeared? And it's like, okay, so I guess the group of ruffians is guilty. Okay, and then you open up the time frame a little bit more, and you, and you learn more, and you open it up a little bit more, and you get more facts, and then you realize that it's not the truth is just not quite as black and white as you would think it is. And you have to dig a little bit deeper. You've got to a little, be a little bit more uh, discerning. And discernment will help you in this situation. Now, 
we mentioned in James chapter 119, verse 20 says, man's anger does not bring about the righteousness that God desires. So getting angry about whatever it is is not going to make the problem change. As a matter of fact, from a physiological standpoint, your anger can make things worse. I think we all kind of know that sociologically, but it's also true physiologically. Because most of our higher executive functions, and we, I think we talked about this a little bit in the car ride home last night, some of us, they're controlled by your prefrontal cortex. That does all your executive functioning. That's where all your complex thinking takes place. But when your anger gets triggered, a shift happens in your brain. It's no longer your prefrontal cortex that's calling the shots. Instead, like your executive function gets moved to the amygdala, which is a different part of the brain. Now think of it like this. Um, it's like the Oval Office. You're in the Oval Office when you're in your prefrontal cortex. You've got everything right there. When you go into your amygdala and your amygdala takes over, it's like you go into the bunker underground. You go into the war room. Okay, And in the war room, there's really two things that your amygdala wants you to do, and that is fight or flight. Those are the two things. And interestingly, when your thinking shifts from the prefrontal cortex to the amygdala, the blood flow that nourishes your brain, that nourishes the prefrontal cortex, gets diverted and, spends, and you actually shift the amount of blood flow so that your amygdala is getting all the blood. And the result of that is your IQ drops about 15 points. Your gross motor skills go out the door. Do you ever notice when you're nervous, your hands shake? Your gross motor skills go out the door because your amygdala is taking over. Your passions are taking over. Now, those are great. And, and they had a, God gave them to us for a reason because if you're walking down the trail in the woods and you see a big snake, you need to fight or flight. You have to figure that out, right? But our conflicts today, by and large, unless you're a professional fighter, our conflicts today in the church are interpersonal and they're relational. So we've got to be very, very careful to not allow our amygdala to take over uh, for our prefrontal cortex because anger does not bring about the righteousness that God desires. So how do we do that? Now, what I want to encourage you is that, and this was, I think, true for, for being an attorney, and it certainly be true when you're in the church, is you've got to take a step back and you've got to broaden the, um, the perspective that you have, what happened before, what happened after. But I want to challenge you a little bit more, particularly when you're dealing with interpersonal relationships, you have to understand the personality type of the person you're dealing with. Because sometimes what's really bugging you is not the substantive issue, it's the personality. And if you can identify that, you're going to go a long way in getting your conflict resolved. So it may not be what's bothering you, may not be what you think is bothering you. It could be that this other person just really grates on you to no end. So in the digital, in your digital uh, notebook, there is the disk inventory, and it, it looks like this. What's your style? Now, you can actually do this uh, on your own at home. I have a few copies of it if you'd like one. Normally, I do it in the, uh, the the session itself, but I don't know that we're really going to have enough time for us to do this and grade it and then talk about it. So we'll just skip to talking about it, okay? But I would encourage you to do this in your own time to find out what your specific profile is. Now, I'll tell you right now, from my experience, you're all primarily eyes. You're all primarily influencers. Youth staff are almost exclusively influencers. You've got a great ability to influence people and you're also very often the fun factor. That's why you're doing this work. You are the fun factor. At any party, it doesn't start until you show up, right? And let me ask you this. Who's not the fun factor at your church, most likely? The senior, the, somebody, the senior pastor. I'm telling you, as a 25-year senior pastor, I am not the fun factor. Never have been, never will be. And so, so many times I wish I was. I would love to be the fun guy. But you know what happened? The Lord sent two assistants that are the fun factor. And uh, we're going to talk about this a little bit more, but I want to just go over the, um, the personality types. Everybody's at one of four orientations, and these are your primary orientations, but all four of them are at work in you. The first one is the D, and that is the person that is a driver, a person is direct. That's usually the senior pastor profile. 
The senior pastor just wants to get things done, and he's going to do whatever he can to do it as quickly and efficiently as possible. That's what most senior pastors at least think of themselves as being, as a D. The influencers, they're the persuaders, they're the fun factor, they're the people that generally work with children and youth. Then you've got the S's. The S's are the steady, status quo people. They're supportive, okay? They like everything to kind of go well, and they want to try to make things well. And just about everybody in church has some factor of that in them, if you're on a church staff. Then there's the compliance officers. They're very conscientious. They very want to be compliant with whatever the rules happen to be. So think of it like this. You go into a building, and there's an elevator. The guy who comes up to the elevator and hits the button 10 times, that's the D. All right. If you're the guy that hits the button ten times, you're a D. Okay, ten times. Ah, I gotta get this as if it's gonna make it come any faster, and it never does, right? Then you get on, and uh, say if another person gets on with you, and that person's the joker, and they turn around and they start doing their bit, whatever it is. You know that guy? It may be you. You may be that guy that comes around and starts doing their bit, and uh, that's the influencer. That's an I. Okay. Then you've got the status quo person. That's the person that if they see somebody coming to the elevator, they hit door open. And what do you think that does to the D, the driver? When the driver sees somebody coming, they want to hit the door closed. <laughs> but then you've got your, your uh, steady, supportive person. They open the door, and the driver's huffing and puffing. Then that person gets on. And the compliance person, he's looking at the the sign that says the weight limit of the elevator, and then he does the math. We're okay, or we're not okay. That's the compliance person. Now, can you imagine in a church how these folks would not get along well with one another? So the way it worked in the church that I served, and matter of fact, my, one, of, one of the folks that I work with is gonna do this with me today, but she was unable to, she's gonna be at RYM in Pennsylvania. But, we sort of broke it all down, and I want you to think about how this might work in your own thing. I was the D and a little bit of I. She was all I, and so was her husband. They were the absolute fun factor. Then we had a director of operations. She was the S, and she kept everything steady. Then we had the treasurer, and the treasurer was the C, right? The compliance person. And can you imagine the circumstances where these different personality types, if they're not really working well together, are going to create conflict in the church? It's just this, as simple as that. Now, statistically, it's interesting that the, the drivers, they only amount to 3% of the population. Any idea why? Because if it was more than 3%, we would be at war all the time. Because those folks, they don't know, or they don't, emphasize relationships as much. The eyes, they tend to be the influencers, 11%. The status quo people are about 69%. And the compliance people are 17%. So now think about that. Let me see. How many people would say that they're Ds? Any Ds here? I would be, yeah, I'd be surprised. OK, we got one. Maybe. OK, influencers, eyes. Yeah, makes sense. And Ss, supportive. Yeah, and, and C's, compliance, got to be, oh, really? Now, that's interesting. You don't see a lot of compliance people in this particular role. So we've got a couple of uh, slight outliers, no disrespect, <laughs> but we've also got the bell curve, which is mostly the I's and the supportive people. So anyway, so uh, if you are an I, tell me what bothers you about a D personality. It's scary. Be very careful. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I'm not scared. Okay, we, did, we did this test okay, up in the dining hall, which I'm a total I, which is why I was late coming in, by the way. So <laughs> I are always late. But we have a D at the table, we have an I, we have an S, and we have no D. But I'm not intimidated by a D. But it's like, oh, they're trying to box us in. You know, they're trying to, like, Tell us that we all need to be doing this. And you're like, ah, no, you're too uptight. Okay, I mean, that's yeah. That's my perspective. Sure. <laughs> and for it's personal. Yeah. And for a, uh, a D, are you also? I'm, I'm an I, and I, I have a D, can do with a D squared. Um, hmm. And you know, I'm kind of a, I'm 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 a, I'm
it's just frustrating because I get annoyed that for him things have to be done his way. Mm. Like if it's not done his way, it's not done right, and everybody else is wrong. And I, you know, I, matter of prayer, I, I just struggle dealing with him because he just never understands that there's more than one right way to do things sometimes. Mm-hmm. So that's just what Rebuttal from the dean. Now, that's a good point. Now, here's the thing. In churches, you have to remember what did Sandy say yesterday? What's your business and how's business? Right? What's our business? Our business, it's not making widgets. If it was making widgets, then you know the, the D's have got to really get everybody in line to make widgets. But it's not. We're sharing the gospel. And sharing the gospel is inherently relational. So as a fellow D, I had to realize that... I needed to fund people. I, there is no way I could do it by myself. Churches that are run exclusively by Ds, you can may as well say D is for dying because you can't have all these bosses that are going to set up programs and policies and everything without any eyes. You need your eyes, right? So what do you think would be a way to cooperate? Do you have any idea? What would you do as a D knowing that you had some of these eyes here? How would you be able to incorporate them knowing that your product is relationships and knowing also that they are the relationship people. Maybe even better than me and you. Right. So now I want to go to the eyes. What are you eyes going to do for, for us D's? So what's the best way to approach a D senior pastor, which is 95% of them? What do you do? Be direct with yeah, them. Okay, one option, be direct. Yeah, you need to know expectations too. Yes, they hear what she said. Where do you want to go and how can we get you there? Now, do we know where senior pastors want to go? Where do they want to go? Where, where does every senior, what does every senior pastor want? And they want growth three ways. What are the three ways they want growth? They want more people in worship. They want more people in the membership roles. So they want the numerical growth, and they want spiritual growth. So what I would encourage you to do is you have to bring that to the table. You want to do it directly. You want to know their expectations. But it doesn't take too much to get into the head of a senior pastor, right? You know what they want. They want you to fulfill the Great Commission. So you, on the other hand, and I think somebody said it, you know where he wants to go. You figure out how to get there, leveraging your gifts, particularly the gifts that you have that he doesn't. You leverage those gifts to provide the growth in the church. I was very reluctant to hire the, the uh, youth, past, youth director that, um, that I ended up with. I had a youth director, and I was on the job six weeks. And someone came into my office and said, he, he's a married man, and his, his wife was about to have their fourth child. And she comes in crying. She says, on Valentine's Day, I saw youth leader give a ring to his intern. What's that about? I don't know. Turns out he was having an inappropriate relationship with his uh, intern. So uh, we, we got rid of him, simple as that. But there I am now, I have nobody in that department. So then an elder in the church who was kind of a, a bull elder, okay, a, very, a little bit of a bully, right? Uh, a guy that really throws his weight around. He says, 
you'll love my daughter. She'll come in here and she'll be a great youth director. Now, what do you think I'm thinking at this point? The last thing in the world I want is the, the, the most perhaps bullysome elder to put his daughter on my senior staff that's going to be my right-hand person. Quick to listen, though. Slow to speak. Slow to get angry. Turns out we were the best of friends. To this day, she was the one who was going to come, come with me here. I, I did their wedding. Her and her husband did, baptized their kids. We go on vacations together. It's been great. What happened? What made it great? Some people will say, we guys just have chemistry. No, 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 it's not that. It's that we, under, we took the time to really understand what makes the other person tick. And she knew what I wanted, when I wanted it, and always went about to bring it. And how did she do it? Well, because you know what pastors want. So she and her husband, they got the church bus, and they would drive to an area where our community was changing. So we wanted our church to look like our community. Our community was not 100% white, middle-class suburbanites. Our community was different. So we took a bus, they took a bus, and they parked it on the corner of this one intersection, and just by their magnetic personalities, they added 15 people from that neighborhood to the church, and that just continued to grow. Nothing a senior pastor is going to be happier about than you bringing people into the church that he's serving. You reaching people that he can't reach. You being an extension of his arms and his legs and his personality. If you do that for him, he will love you for life. When I come into the pulpit and I see it and, and, and the people that they bring and that they love and that they minister to, boy, it's like a sigh of relief. It's like I'm not in it alone. It's not up to me to grow the church. God is working through everybody. So you could be the kind of youth pastor that you will be worth your weight in gold when you are ministering to people and bringing them into the church. And that's, more than anything else, going to make your senior pastor content. That's a good question. Let me just take a look and see the context. Oh, yeah. He doesn't like, the, he doesn't want a full, pre- this is also true. Bottom line. Don't give me A to Z, just give me Z. So I don't need to know. All husbands, think about, you know, and that's a, but isn't it, yeah, it is true. So think about your own husband. If you have a husband, think about him. He just wants to know the bottom line, right? Just tell me what you want. So very often you come into a staff meeting and say, hey, praise God, several people came to Christ at this event. We had this event, and seven children came forward, received Christ, and we've been ministering with them, and they're growing in their faith. So-and-so is an avowed atheist, now they're a Christian. Tell the pastor that, and you'll have his undying support. At least that's been my perspective. For those of us who are D's and our senior pastors, you got to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to get angry. And if you know that they have something you don't have, you've got to just trust them with that. And it's a vice versa. If your senior pastor has something that you don't have, just trust them on it. And, and sometimes you may get hurt and you may find yourself you know, in a little bit of a tug of war, an uncomfortable situation. There are some senior pastors that are going to feel threatened by your popularity. There are some that are going to feel threatened by your ability to communicate. There are going to be some that are feel threatened by the way that you can be a Pied Piper to such a large group of people, 35 and under. But you have to make sure that the person knows you're bringing them as a cooperative member of the team, and you're doing it for the glory of God and in working together with your, your senior pastor. The, the one, uh, my youth director's uh, assistant youth director, he would often say, we want to be your booster rockets, and we're just all going to go up together, And because they did things I couldn't do. I'm not a tech guy. He was a tech guy, you know, did it all. So I just want to encourage you in that way. So if you're a, an S person, a stability person, how, are you, how do you interact with a D? And I think we did have a couple stability people, supportive people. Are you surrounded by any Ds? Well, it's funny enough, my, my co-leader are eyes. Oh, okay. So how does that work? It, 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 they've got a lot of vision, and they're really excited, and are constantly meeting with people and doing things, but it feels like they can sometimes be floundering and like, 
that works. I'm also an administrator in our church. So I've also got to think about like numbers and what we're doing. Compliance. And getting things done. So um, it's, yeah, when we sit down for staff meetings, they're just talking about people and relationships. And I'm like, but we got stuff we got to talk about. <laughs> yes. Things we have to decide and get done. And so it's, yeah. That's really important, isn't it? I mean, figuring out that. Because if and if you're outnumbered, yeah. they may spend a whole bunch of time, and you've got to bring them back on task in a gentle way without getting too upset. And that's that's what our operations person did for us because we were more DIs, and she was the one who was always. And if you do it the right way, and you let them somehow communicate through trust, because you've been there for four years, so they know, they trust you that you're really going to be fulfilling the purposes that God has for the church that includes these relationships. You're putting infrastructure around the relationships by, I don't know, raising the money or whatever to provide for the one-on-ones or whatever it is. Uh, so how, do you, how has that been working out? Um, yeah, it's just we are figuring out that we need a lot more communication. <laughs> um, okay. Just as far as um, they'll go off and do something and get excited about it and start something and they haven't <laughs> informed me. <laughs> and all of a sudden they find out they're in an area where they don't know where to go from here. It's gotten too big. Mm. And so they try to bring me in, but it's way too late in the process. And so I spend all my time trying to catch up. Catch up. Will they put give you a seat at the table on the front end? Uh, that's what we're trying to talk through <laughs> or figure out. And well, I'll give you a tip for that. If you want to have a seat at the table on the front end, and I think you need one, you absolutely need one, the way to do it is probably not say much at the table while they're waxing eloquent about their great idea. <laughs> Be impressed. Okay. If you, I mean, force it if you have to. But wow, that is like such a great idea. I love it. I love the price that went out. Yeah. Or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> But I mean, because the thing is that for an influencer, if they don't feel like they're influencing you, yeah. they're going to not want to deal with you. Yeah. So you got to make them feel like they're, they have a, and that you're really impressed with the idea. If it's a good one, if it's bad, it's bad. <laughs> but, but try your best to really understand where they're coming from and, and, and know that that's their personality type and see what you could do from a financial standpoint or from a, a logistical standpoint to make it happen. And then they will feel supported by you. And the way it, it worked out in my last call is our operations person was at every meeting with everybody else because she was so supportive. So really, if, you, if, you're, if they know that you're on their side and you're supporting them, and you're going to find a way to, if you think it's a legit idea, you know, and if you have the authority to determine its legitimacy, sometimes you won't. Um, but if, assuming you do, and you think it's a legit idea, think about how you can make it happen. Because that's, people, leaders, Ds, never want to be told no. They want to be given another solution. If, if, if no's the answer, you don't want to lead with no, you want to lead with an alternative. And I know the way I used to, when I would have, sometimes I would dream a dream, and uh, they never told me no, <laughs> my, my eyes, but they were just like, wow, or... We could <laughs> not do that at all and do something else. But they did it with such support and enthusiasm, I was all in. And they managed to just get me right along. Say, that's a good influencer. So you would want to work on some of those influencing. And I think you can do it. Because once you identify where they're at with their I or their D, you can totally fit in with that and become a, such a valuable part of the team that they wouldn't think of having meetings without you. No. So. Uh, Anyone else on the... You're a compliance guy. Now, what do you run into? I can only imagine. I just think it's a I'm actually a D. Woohoo! All right, a D. <laughs> nice. With, with C, C's my second. Okay. But, yeah. All right, so how did... Now, you've heard all this. What do you think? Um, I, I, like, I, I've worked with a, a strong D, so I think <laughs> kind of what you were saying, it, it, sort of, it sort of sounded like kind of a negative way, but my take on that is sort of just hearing him out and letting him kind of run with his ideas, and it was just, it was good. Then he's on the same page with you, and you kind of feel like you're on a team, but if you kind of give pushback right away, it could be very, it, it just, it's a lack of the respect isn't there. Uh, mm. It's almost ego-driven, it can be. In it can case, be. And that was the case that I was in. Yes. Um, yeah. You know, that's a great, push back right away, 
just never. Where does the Bible say quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry? And it also says about uh, the first person who speaks seems to be right. This is Proverbs 18, 17. Uh, the one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. So don't be wedded to any idea until you've really had an opportunity to, to, to hear it all the way through. When it comes to the pushback, never be Debbie Downer. Find something good about it. Know your senior pastor well enough to know what he's good at and, and, and encourage him in that and support him in that. And, and in so doing, I believe that this person is going to do the same for you. Now, it doesn't always happen perfectly, but when you understand what the person wants and you make sure he gets it, and look, know his preferences and try to, try to help him with those. The, the staff that I was with, they understood me so well, praise God, that they would know where I'd want to sit at the table if we're going to go out to eat. We would go out to eat a lot with people. and so They knew where I wanted to sit. And they would make sure that I could sit there because they know I'd be more comfortable because I'm not the fun factor. I'm more the awkward factor. So if they give me a seat where I'm not going to feel awkward, I'm going to have a better time. They know what I like to drink, so if I went up to the restroom, I'd have my Diet Coke when I got back. They served me that way. And as a result, all I wanted to do was serve them. And then when, it, when, when they became uh, pregnant, I was like, how much maternity leave can we possibly give you? And we, and we did it. And, and they didn't take it anyway. I remember seeing them sleeping in the basement on these giant beanbag chairs because they, they, that just meant they didn't work as hard. They're on maternity leave. That just meant they didn't work as hard. But they served, and then we served back. And what does the Bible say? Each of you should submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So even as a senior pastor, you submit to your team, and they will submit to you. There was a fellow that I, I knew. He was a, a lieutenant general, and he commanded a fort in New Jersey. And he was a World War II vet, and he, he since passed. It was some years ago. But I saw him on his deathbed. He had a hospital bed moved into his really large house. And I asked him, his name was General Foster. I said, General Foster, what was the greatest lesson you ever learned in your life? And as sick as he was, he was dazed from death. He lifted his head from his pillow, and he, and he lifted his hand and pointed to me, and he said, always take care of your troops. If you always take care of your troops, your troops will take care of you. If you ever see the, the, the movie, We Were Soldiers, I think Mel Gibson was in it. Uh, he was Colonel Hal Moore. He was the first foot on the battlefield and the last foot off the battlefield. And as a result, he took care of his soldiers, the soldiers took care of him. Senior pastors have to take care of the staff, and the staff has to take care of the senior pastor. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. When we do that, the conflicts, obviously, they go way down. So you have to know their personality types. Now, one of the ways to do that is through emotional intelligence. Is there a question? Yeah. Sure. If the senior pastor doesn't do that, how do you know that the senior pastor is not really attending? The scripture that, that I always think about, because you'll see this, is insofar as it depends on you, be at peace with all people. So what he does doesn't change you. You purpose in your mind that you are serving him the way you would serve Christ. You know, because you're, you know, is it, how could you say that you love me, who you haven't seen, but you hate your brother? So if he's your brother, you try to serve him as you would Christ. And that means pour yourself out, empty yourself. Empty yourself of pride. And I remember as, as a young associate pastor, my pride was my number one problem, followed by my anger. And I had a great senior pastor I disagreed with all the time. He was a great man of God. I disagreed with him all the time, though. And, and the conflicts were, if it wasn't for him being patient, I, I wouldn't be here. I'd be dead because of how difficult I was with him. So I was constantly trying to check the pride, check the... Um, Check the anger. And he was such a kind man that, that he, he did that. So he tolerated my nonsense, right? So I learned from that. And in, in return, I try to tolerate as, as much as I can. But if you're in a position where the guy's not good, just try to pour yourself out for him. Put to death the pride. Put to death the, uh, the anger. Confirmation backfighting. 
best to lead her classroom well and set an exemplary model and to lovingly serve her administration regardless of like the cost. So just kind of put that aside. And like that just really convicted me and changed the attitude I had toward you know, the job for the next year and a half. So Yeah. I think you see change when you serve people. You know, think about it. I was reluctant to hire the person that, that I eventually hired, but she and, and the team that we brought, everybody was in their 20s. I was the oldest person on the, on the team. They were all in their 20s, and they just served me in surprising ways. And as a result, you do anything for them, and that's what makes a good ministry team, when you're really willing to serve. Even get out of your own comfort zone. Now, if this was a room full of senior pastors, I'd be telling them something different about how to serve you, but they're not here. It's just you. So I want to say, pour out yourself for the church, for the ministry. Don't make it about you, because what we're doing is really for the truth and the righteousness and the glory of God. And if it means that we have to suffer some indignities, we will, and all of us have, and all of us will continue to. I'll give you a quick, quick example. Uh, we were getting reamed out about something. Some um, people, members of a prominent church, were upset about something. And they were just blasting the, the executives at the General Assembly, which is me, Jeff Jeremiah, and Phil Van Valkenburg. So we ended up going out to brunch with these folks. And uh, you know, first of all, my incl inclination was I didn't even want to go to lunch with them because their criticism was unfair. They didn't even understand. But, but I kept my mouth shut because these guys have been at it a lot longer. And they said, you can go have some lunch, OK. So I remember Jeff and I ordered soup. You may think that's trivial. No, it's important. They're venting, and Jeff's just eating soup. And soup is great, because you could stretch it out really long, and you could just look, and you could get your crackers and break them. And you could just be just so focused on your soup that I really wondered if he was listening. Because I'm like, I just bread and ready to. But he's so calm, cool, and collected. And he's doing this, he's eating his soup. And I'm thinking, I don't even know if he's listening. Maybe he's not hearing what they're saying. Because if I was hearing that, I'd be acting differently. But I'm glad he's the boss, and I just watch him. So anyway, we get done. They've finished. He, first of all, talks about all the points that they make that are good. And I'm just shocked and humbled. He goes, he heard every word they said. He's like Santa Claus, by the way. He knows everything that goes on. He sees everything. So he doesn't miss a trick. He looks like he's not paying attention, but he's down with every detail. So he has it all up here. He's a PhD in church history, you know. So he's a bright guy. He's got it up here. He has a list in his mind of all the things that they said that were right or possibly right. Now, he's already won them over. Anything past this point is gravy. Then he points out some changes that we'll make to do better in the future. And, he, and then he also lets them know, as the, as the third thing, where they didn't quite get it, but they'll get it this year. They didn't quite understand because of the way it went. But don't worry about it. We'll make sure. By the end of it, and I'm kidding you not, they're hugging him. They're walking out of this place with their arms around him. And, and all, you know, and I'm thinking, not only did he remove a potential enemy, but he turned him into an advocate because of the way he really genuinely listened to them and loved them and brought them along. And I'm like, man, if I could do that, that'd be great. We can do that, and we've got to do that if we're going to be successful in ministry. I want to give you um, uh, an example of how to deal with a, a compliance person. A lot of eyes get big ideas, right? But then you have to pay the piper, and the compliance person's going to be the pay the piper guy. So. I had this idea. In our offices in Orlando, all of the senior leaders have offices around the, the perimeter with looking out. Okay, They have like views, right? All of the non-senior folks are in cubicles. And the cubicles are about this high. So you can imagine it has, it's like a library. It's so quiet. There's no interaction. And it makes it very difficult to get work done if there's no interaction, right? So being a DI type of person, mostly D, I go to the compliance guy, who's sort of the person that runs the office. I said, listen, man, we got to get rid of these central cubicles. Nobody's in them. Knock them down. Put a conference table in the middle. It'll be so fun, right? Isn't that how a lot of eyes say? It'll be fun. He hates the idea, OK? So what are your choices? You're an I. You have a great idea. 
but you don't know how much it's going to cost. You don't know the return on the investment. You have no way of predicting whether it'll be successful, right? Uh, and then the compliance person that you have to deal with, your treasurer, your session member, whatever, they hate the idea. So you have three options. You could be a shark, try to gobble them up, try to manipulate the situation, try to, to flank them and beat them up. You could be a teddy bear and just give up and say, well, I guess there's no point in doing it. Or you can be an owl. And the wise owl is the person who can find out what the other person needs and make that fit together. So who is the owl in this situation? It wasn't me. It was the compliance guy. He hated my idea. I'm like, what am I going to do? How am I going to break through this? So I'm, I'm, I'm running over ideas. He comes into my office with a presentation. A presentation on my idea that he didn't like. And I'm like, this guy's good. So he comes up with blueprints. This is what you were thinking about, right? I was like, yeah, that looks great. And here's the cost estimates. This is what you were thinking of, right? Yeah, that looks great. here's the budget that we have. He says, I think it's a good idea. Let's do it. And I was like, he's the wise owl. He wasn't going to be a shark and try to politically scheme it. He wasn't going to be a teddy bear and just roll over. Instead, he did what compliance people do. He did a full assessment and came up with the right solution. Now, for a DI like myself, now I know in the future, if I'm dealing with a C, rather than tell him it's going to be super fun, I really need to tell him this is how much it's going to cost, this is what it will look like, and I need to make a better presentation. Remember where it said Ds, no presentation or whatever? Guess what, D, if you're really going to get support from your Cs, you're going to have to make an effective presentation. Yes, sir? Right. Numbers, so you know, what do you think of it? Can yeah. you help me work this into if it could be work if you think it could be work workable? That's a great idea. Yeah, ask. I mean, for, if you're a D, the temptation for D's is like, this is the way it's gonna be. I don't want to hear about it, you better make it happen. Right. So you gotta really back away from that because the guy's thinking about the bottom line. And what's the thing that's unspoken here? is that it actually was a good idea. Not only was it super fun, but it was also cost effective, and it improves morale in the whole office. So you, you have to understand it's not about the person. It's not about you. It's really about the result. It's about pursuing truth together. So we were trying to pursue truth together, and I was so grateful and humbled that he did all the work and came back, and we, came, we, saw, we found truth together. I mean, it was really remarkable. I want to encourage you for that. I also want to, another encouragement, we have one more assessment we're going to do. Um, sometimes, when you start feeling this anxiety come up on something, know that you may not know everything that's going on, and you may be pleasantly surprised. This same uh, compliance person, I once had to stay at a, at a particular hotel, and it was the only hotel for tens of miles away. It was right by the airport. I had a 4.30 a.m. flight. I couldn't get there any other way. I stayed at this hotel. I got the bill for the hotel, and I thought, oh my goodness, this, really, this is too much money for one night in a hotel. So I start justifying it in my own mind, and I'm like, okay, I can kind of figure this out. It's the only place to stay. I had no choice. I'm going to camp out or, or sleep in a bus station. So I was like, all right, I do it. So I put it in. I get an email from the compliance person, come see me about this expense. Okay, so what's the temptation that we have to avoid? When anytime somebody says, come see me about this expense, what are you thinking, right? You're, you, the, the prefrontal cortex, the amygdala, you're ready to go into battle. So right away you start marshalling your resources and you're thinking, how am I going to explain all this? How am I going to, I'm going to be tough. I'm not going to be a teddy bear. I'll be a shark if I have to because I laid this money out. I'm going to get reimbursed. And then I thought, wait a minute, first of all, you may as well find out what the guy wants. So quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to go. I walk in, the guy says, yeah, we've got to change this. You fail to include the exchange rate. You're actually entitled to 20% more than what you put in for. You put it in dollars, it should have been in euros. So we actually have to pay you a little bit more. And I'm just like, wait a minute. It's not about personalities. He really is a compliance guy. He really wants to get it right. So in this case, okay, you got it right. Hats off to you. But seriously, 
You know, we, I, I anticipate, maybe I'm the only one, I anticipate these conversations and I get anxious about it. And I just want to let you know, suspend your anxiety, cast your cares on the Lord and say, I'm going to go in there, I'm going to listen. And try to solve the problem, not attack the person. Because sometimes what's really triggering us is the personality. Okay, now uh, the, one of the ways that we know that we'll be able to do this is through emotional intelligence. So I'm going to do, uh, give you a chance. You could fill out uh, A, B, C, or D, right? And I'll, I'll give you the questions, fill out A, B, C, or D. And at the end, I'll tell you how you can score your emotional intelligence, okay? So here's question number one. And don't overthink the question. That's for C's. Don't overthink it. Just whatever comes. Question number one. You're on a plane that hits extremely bad turbulence. What do you do? A. Continue to read your book, paying little attention to the turbulence. B, become vigilant for an emergency, watching the flight attendant's response. C, a little of A, a little of B. D, none of the above, I never noticed. Okay, A, B, C, or D. All right, question two. A younger person on the staff in your working group comes to you because he feels that his coworkers don't like him. What do you do? A, stay out of it, let them deal with it. B, talk to him about how to improve his relationships and ask him why this might be occurring. C, tell him in a kind way it should not affect him. Don't let it affect you, don't let it bother you. D, distract him by praising his work. Number three, assume you're a college student who just received a D on a midterm, what do you do? A, sketch out a specific plan for ways to improve your grade and resolve to follow through. B, resolve to do better in the future. C, tell yourself it doesn't matter and concentrate on other areas where you perform better. D, try to talk your professor into giving you a better grade. Question four. Imagine you're a telemarketer and 15 people just hung up on you. What do you do? Call it a day and hope you have better luck tomorrow. Assess qualities in yourself that might be undermining your ability to make a sale. Try something new in the next call, C, and keep plugging away. Or D, consider a new line of work. Number five. You're at a work meeting and a colleague takes credit for your idea. What do you do? A, confront the colleague on the spot. B, after the meeting, take the colleague aside and confront him. C, don't do anything, it's not worth the fallout. D, thank the colleague and give the group more specific details and goals. Number six, how can you best calm down a colleague who's just been insulted by someone they're in a conflict with. A, tell her to forget about it. It was no big deal, it happens. B, try to distract her by changing the subject. C, join her in bad-mouthing the individual. D, tell her about a time when someone insulted you and what you would change if you could. Number seven. You and a coworker have gotten into an argument that has escalated into a shouting match. What do you do? A, explain that you need a break, but that you do want to discuss the matter further. B, go silent and refuse to engage in any way. C, apologize, even if you don't mean it, just to end the argument. Or D, breathe for just a moment and then state your side as precisely as you can. Two more, three more. Number eight, you're the chair of a committee. What's the first thing you do with your committee? A, draw up an agenda and allot time for discussion of each item. B, have people take time to get to know one another better. C, begin by asking each person for ideas about how to go about your duties. D, start out brainstorming any ideas the members have. 
Number nine, your assistant is diligent and attention to detail oriented, but is scared of new and challenging roles. What do you do? A, accept that he has limits and do the more challenging work yourself. B, tell him to see a psychologist for help. C, purposefully expose him to challenging work assignments so he can face his fear. D, engineer an ongoing series of challenging but manageable work assignments. Number 10. You started playing a musical instrument. What's the most effective method for learning to play? A. Hold yourself to a practice time each day. B. Choose pieces that stretch your ability a bit. C. Practice only when you're in the mood. D. Pick pieces far beyond your ability, but that you can master with diligent effort. Okay, did everybody get them? I know that was kind of, did you feel pretty good? You got them more or less? Okay. I'll give you the correct, emotionally uh, mature, intelligent answers, okay? One is C. Two is B. Three is A. Four is C. Five, D. Six, D. Seven, A. Eight, B. Nine, D. Ten, B. Hopefully you know how many you got right. Give yourself 20 points for every one you got right. Sure. One is C, two is B, three is A, four is C, five is D, six is D, seven is A, eight is B, nine is D, ten is B. Okay. Now, if, you, if you've done your math, just kind of look up and I'll, I'll give you what this means. 20 points for everyone you got correct. All right. Did you score over, anyone score over 140? All right. One, whoa, all right. Okay. At 140, great. Okay, excellent. That's like the, the, the cream of the crop. And that is uh, 140 and above are the very top of the emotional intelligence scores. But I've got to warn you that most of us have an inclination to score ourselves higher uh, than we actually are. So if you really want to check it out, get someone who knows you and loves you and see if that, if that fits. Just, just saying. Uh, run the test by someone. If you're between 120 and 140, 120 and 140, okay, good. Uh, you're in the top 14% of the population, and this is the area where you would be offered employment at a Fortune 500 company. Uh, traditionally, they look for their lawyers, to, or their lawyers, yeah, their leaders to score above 120. Now, how about 80 to 119? All right, good, you're still doing well. <laughs> You're all doing very well. Uh, you could still you you do some work, but you're on the right path. <laughs> but here's here's the good news: you're still in the top 29 percent. I can see why people are looking for you. <laughs> oh. Okay, uh, but 71% of the people in the U.S. score below where you've scored, so you are in the top 29%. Okay, so that, that's pretty good. And the good news is that you can, well, the sad news is that 71% of the people have lower emotional intelligence, so you almost have to enter into things knowing that they may not be where you're at. Chances are they're not. 71% chance that they're not where you're at. Okay, be prepared for that. Was there anyone who was, I won't ask that. <laughs> All right, and if you feel like you're not where you want to be, the answer is you can actually work a little bit harder when you're faced with people uh, that, that challenge you. You work a little harder, and once you know this stuff, and you could go online and you look at it, think it through, every, the next time you take this, if, you, if there is a next time and there ought to be, you're gonna do a whole lot better, however you did. You're gonna do better the next time because you're gonna be more aware of it, okay? 
So I'm going to uh, close this in prayer. All right. Thank you so much for your time. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you that we could be together. And I pray, Lord, that we would be encouraged by this time and that we would remember that you created us. And you created us for a purpose. You have prepared this purpose before the foundations of the world were laid. You have set us, set a seal on us and set us into this work. And I know, Lord, that you are going to see us through it and you're going to get us where you want us to be. And I just pray that we could be encouraged and trust in you and put aside anything that, that might cause us conflict, consternation, or trouble in our ministry. I just really want to lift up everybody in this room right now, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that you just grant them clarity of thought, the likes of which they've never had before, so that when they go into a conflict situation, that they handle it very well and are able to resolve it to the, to the glory of you and for the benefit of the church. In Jesus' name, amen.